Church, do you believe that this word is living and active? As we open it today, let's pray one last time. Lord, we're about to open your word, the word of God himself. So, Lord, we pray that this morning it will cut to our joints, to our very marrow, Lord, that we who will face you one day, who can hide nothing from you, Lord, that today you will reveal to us how it is we ought to hear you, how it is we ought to obey you. And Lord, we come before you confidently, before your throne of grace, asking these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I invite you to open up to Luke chapter 9. And um, if you're going to be using your pew Bibles in front of you, that's on page 815. So while you turn to Luke chapter 9, I invite you to think about some things in life which don't seem to go together, but when you put them together, are awesome. An example is, how many are with you here? The Pittsburgh salads with the french fries on the salad. How many of you are morally opposed? You're supposed to be Pittsburghers. Sweet potato fries on a salad. Ah, So, so sweet potato fries on a salad. There you have it. Um, Nathan Jones earlier this week said, mac and cheese and spaghetti sauce. My personal favorite, peanut butter and pickle sandwiches. (laughs) And lastly... um, I think this would be delicious. Bacon and chocolate. I joked about having like a, a food bar on your way out of church where you can sample each of these things. Um, but you might never show up again. The reason we do that is because today we have four sections of scripture. So I invite you to look down um, at your Bibles. At the beginning of verse 37, we see a subtitle. We see a section. It's Jesus heals a boy with an unclean spirit. And then there is another section, the one that follows up. The the heading is what? Jesus again foretells his death. The following heading, who is the greatest? And lastly, anyone not against us is for us. Now, Many of you may know that these headings aren't inherently inspired. They're not necessarily from God himself telling a man to write them down. They're not part of the original text. They were added to help us find certain pieces or certain portions of the Bible. And with that, when I read those four sections, those four headings, I think to myself, well, these are actually four different sections of Scripture, it might seem. However... When we take them together, and I want you all to see this, that they are here on purpose, in this order, on purpose, because God himself has for us to see something, how all four of these seemingly different things work well together, just like peanut butter and pickles. Dill pickles, not bread and butter, by the way. Has to be dill. So with that, let's begin reading. We'll start in verse 37 down to verse 50. 
On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. And Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we try to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Now, before we jump into this week's text, we need to briefly look at where we came from. Why? Because it starts, verse 37 starts on the next day. So last week, if you were here, you will remember that we talked about the transfiguration, the moment when God's glory, when Jesus' glory broke through the physical barrier, if you will, and Jesus there on the mount stood and with his face shining as bright as the sun and with his clothes whiter than no man could bleach. As he stood there with Elijah and Moses talking, this is the most glorious moment that Jesus would have on earth until after he died. Jesus comes off of that mountain in such glory. And this, this, don't miss this part. We, we see this. When Jesus comes off this mountain, it's not only in Luke's gospel. I see the transfiguration, Jesus healing a boy with a demon, and then the Jesus foretelling his death does not only happen in this exact order in the book of Luke. It also happens in Matthew. It also happens in the book of Mark. So these stories are in this order on purpose in all three of the first three gospels in the Bible. What's the point? God probably has a particular order. He probably has a particular purpose in how these stories all connect. 
And that's if you do want to take some time and read those on your own this week. Um, the similar accounts, the, the parallel accounts occur in Matthew 17 and verse 18 and also in Mark chapter 9. The same order, nearly the same cadence with the exception of Matthew. It doesn't have the last portion that we read today. God has a purpose. And so let's dive in and try to uncover what it is that God might have for these seemingly different portions of Scripture. So as Jesus comes off that mountain, arraigned in all his glorious splendor, as he comes off a mountaintop experience, he steps right back into the normal. And not only the normal, but he steps right back into the evil world. It's a, it's a pretty big deal that a young boy has a demon in him, isn't it? Jesus, coming off of the glorious mountain, sets foot on earth, and the first thing he faces is a crowd. And the second thing he faces is a father who is desperate, bringing his son to Jesus. And his son has a demon. What a reality check. What whiplash. And so in brokenness and in desperation, this father brings his son to Jesus and says, Jesus, (laughs) evil is still rampant. It doesn't matter whether or not you were on the mountaintop. There were still things happening down below. Some of us kind of have that, right? On vacation time, we kind of forget about the responsibilities of life, and then we show show up in life, and we realize we have 700 emails in our inbox. This is just like 10 times worse. And the Father comes, and notice what he says to Jesus in verse 40. You see, Jesus is not the first one to see This demon-possessed boy, is he? No. It says, the father says, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Now, um, last week, as I briefly mentioned, the idea that God doesn't have the same thing for all of us. He took three disciples up on the mountain. He left nine Now, in this case, we don't know for sure, but it seems very logical that the other nine, God had a purpose for them, didn't he? This dad took his son to the disciples, presumably when Jesus was on the mountain. And so it's just an interesting thing to see. Yes, the Lord has things for everyone, and we don't always know exactly what his plans are. But it's also interesting and that they were unable did you catch that the disciples were unable to cast out this demon why well we don't exactly see in this account but it's really interesting because earlier in this chapter uh, if anyone's there just take a quick look at the first verse in chapter 9 jesus expressly gives them power to cast out demons And here they are, 37 verses later, and they cannot cast out demons. 
it doesn't seem to make sense. And we learn why in Mark's account. Um, the disciples in, in Mark chapter 9 turn and say, Jesus, why were we unable to do this? And he says to them, this kind can only be cast out by prayer. By prayer. And yet the reality stands, they were unable to cast it out. Why? Because it's not in their own power. They needed a bigger power. They needed a stronger power. We'll come back to that after a while. Now note Jesus' response in verse 41. This is fascinating to me. Jesus responds, O faithless and twisted generation. O faithless and twisted generation. Now, those who were sharp in the crowd and um, would have a pretty good idea what Jesus was doing here, because one of the last, actually the last song of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32 says this, when he is recounting, when Moses is recounting the story of the Lord's faithfulness to Israel, speaking of Israel, Moses says, they have dealt corruptly with him, with God. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Sound familiar? In Deuteronomy, Moses is talking about God's chosen people. In Luke, Jesus is talking about the Jews who are around him, God's chosen people people. And not only is he talking about the Jews who are to be waiting for the Messiah as a faithless and a twisted generation, but there's something a little bit more specific. Why did Jesus respond? What was the last thing that the Father said in verse 40? He says, your disciples couldn't do it. In verse 41, Jesus answers the Father. He's answering, like giving an answer as to why, perhaps, that was unable. And Jesus turns and he says, faithless and twisted generation. Also including, catch this church, not only the general population, but also including the disciples. The ones who had been following him, who had seen all these miracles, O faithless and twisted generation. And this thing gets worse, doesn't it? Verse 41, Jesus continues. How long am I to bear with, be with you and bear with you? As in, can't I just be done with you now? How long am I to be with you and to bear with you? And I've often has, have had this thought about Jesus the almighty, perfect God taking up residence with us, right? We call it the incarnation. When Jesus becomes flesh, and he spent it with a whole bunch of goofballs, a whole bunch of sinners. Sometimes I, I wonder what the campfire talk may have been like 
with his disciples as he's living among a people who will not receive him, as he's living among a people, and more specifically, at least one in the 12, who will ultimately betray him. How long am I to be with you and bear with you? Among people who do not want the antidote that he offers. Jesus has just come from the mountain of glory, and now he's just, how much longer? I know what my glory is. I know what it's like. How much longer do I have to be here with you? To make it a little bit more personal, um, in working in youth ministry, sixth grade guys, we can be goofy, can't we? We can be crazy, can't we? Sometimes people will say, how on earth can you deal with students? With a whole bunch of teenagers from time to time. But it doesn't take long to realize that the shenanigans of teenagers don't really change as people grow up. Grown-ups are just grown-up teenagers, right? You deal with the same petty problems. You deal with the same issues, the same cores, um, um, errors of the heart, don't we? And how we can bear with one another. Here's an example, if you will. When, that, when an obnoxious student shows up for the very first time to church or to youth group, I don't say, sit down and shut up. Why? Because they're gone. If Jesus could bear with his sinful disciples, I can make it through an hour and a half of someone being obnoxious, right? If a coach, a wrestling coach, saying, get down lower. Every time you don't get low, I don't know how many times I can tell you this, you get pinned, you get flipped on your back, unless you start low. How many times do I have to tell you this? How much longer do I have to bear with you? The examples can go on and on. Physical therapists, right? How many of you have neglected what your physical therapist has said to do? <laughs> How much longer do I have to... No wonder your knee doesn't feel any better. You didn't do what I told you. How much longer am I to bear with you? And sometimes we feel like we're pouring out our hearts like we're caring, maybe even more than um, one would deserve, and yet decisions are made by the ones whom we care that are detrimental to themselves, and we just feel like, how much longer? How much longer can I bear with you when my patience is running dry? And Jesus was stuck with a whole bunch of stinky fishermen and bunch of people who didn't believe him just wonder what some of those campfires were like as they were talking about things that probably were not worthy of him as they were laughing and being entertained by the things that he would ultimately die for as they were on multiple occasions falling asleep when he most wanted them to bear with him but aren't you glad, church, that it is his nature to be long-suffering? So listen to the words in Psalm 86. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, 
slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He continued to bear with that generation, did he not? So let's just pause briefly in application. Here's the question. Where in my life do I need to bear in patience? How many would say that our world, that our society is a faithless and twisted generation? That the world around us, that we're just like, how much longer can I deal with this? What about um, people in our lives? You know, a, a coworker who's green behind the ears, who just can't seem to get anything right. Maybe a boss who, just like, I just can't do that one extra thing. I'm going to explode. If you give me that one extra thing, because you're not carrying your work on your own. Um, I was a recruiter once, and I heard lots of those stories, mind you. Our children. How much longer can I have patience for you, little one? How much longer? Marriages, husbands and wives, when you just feel like one more straw is going to break the back to bear. May I just encourage you, Jesus bore with his disciples. He bore with that generation, and we ought to bear in patience one with another. How about this one? to bear with yourself. Because sometimes it's a lot easier to give patience to someone else, isn't it? But to bear with yourself, after all, Jesus is, if you got a heartbeat, he is still bearing with you. He didn't give up. And he hasn't yet. So if God Almighty perfect in holiness and in all his ways, can bear with a bunch of rejecting sinners, so can we. And so in our effort to be more like Christ, church, may we bear one with another. And how do we go about this bearing? Well, I just love it when the Bible tells us how to do something, don't you? Philippians chapter 2. This scripture bottom lines it for us. Chapter 2, 14 and 15. How do we bear one with another? Do all things without grumbling or disputing, specifically among the body of faith. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Sound familiar? Among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to this word of life. Don't grumble or dispute. Be blameless and innocent, children of God, in the midst of a crooked generation where we can shine as lights as we hold fast to this word of life. That's how we continue to bear with Christ as our example. So let's keep diving through this word of life. Jesus has said, How long am I to bear with you? How long am I to be with you? And the very end of that statement, he says, bring the boy to me. 
And verse 42, we see that the, as the boy is brought, the evil spirit, in one last effort to cause harm, convulses the boy. Often evil does when it's about to, to meet judgment, isn't it? It has one last stand, but that doesn't do anything to extend its stay. Jesus casts it out. He heals the boy of the unclean spirit. And catch this, at the end of this section, verse 43, all were astonished at the majesty of God. Now, to my counting, this is the first time in the book of Luke where everyone around absolutely knew that this was the work of God. And all were astonished that this Jesus character had the majesty of God. Now, um, I told you beforehand that I want us to see this all as a section, and here we get a hint. If you look at verse 43, it doesn't end with that sentence. If you look, it actually goes on into the next subsection. And from time to time, when that happens in the Bible, that's an indicator that maybe these sections should go together. Now, the verses aren't they weren't part of the original Bible also, but they're kind of like a house address because otherwise, if I were to say, open up to, um, you know, that part in the Bible where Jesus says, and we didn't have the verses, it'd take us like six years. And so while the verses aren't inspired in and of themselves, they can be helpful in seeing how things connect. Um, But more than that, look at the words in the second half of verse 43. This shows us that these sections must go together. It says, but while they were all marveling at everything. Translation, while that was still happening, Jesus turns to his disciples. And he says, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They are marveling at his very majesty. Jesus is foretelling of a majesty far more beautiful and far more glorious that no one would really get and that no one would really understand. And Jesus kind of sees that, doesn't he? He says, let these words sink in. Modern day translation. Preacher says, now if you don't get anything else I say all morning, don't miss this. Jesus is saying, let these words sink in. And did they? The disciples, they don't understand what Jesus is saying, that he's about to be delivered into the hands of men. Sometimes we just don't get it either, do we? We just don't understand why things happen. We sometimes don't even understand exactly what the word says. But (laughs) here we see, that the disciples didn't get it either. Sometimes we say, if I were alive back then, I would have gotten it. Well, they're proving that they still didn't get it, that they have the answer key of life literally walking with them. And not only do they not ask, but why don't they ask? They were afraid. You see, it had not yet been Jesus' time. And these things were concealed from them because it wasn't his time 
And this is the tragic part, church. They were afraid to ask. Now, um, as we as we move to another moment of application, isn't it glorious that our reality, because Jesus has died on the cross and because he has come back to life, our reality today is, is significantly, it's an order of magnitude different than what they were experiencing then. They were afraid to ask. But did you notice what Valerie read for us earlier? Hebrews chapter 4, 15 and 16. Listen to these words. For we do not have a great high priest. Translation, we do not have Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. We don't have to be afraid to ask like the disciples were. The writer says, come confidently before the throne of grace where Jesus, our great high priest, the one who's mediating between us and God himself, we can go there confidently, without fear of asking. And what's this asking? The modern word for asking is to pray. After all, why did Jesus go up on the Mount of Transfiguration in the first place? To pray. Jesus, he took James and John and Peter to pray. And it's on the heels of this unanswered question. This question that they never got answered, at least at that point in time, that we pick up in verse 46. Let's read it together. An argument arose among them, the disciples, as to which one of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to him, them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, him, excuse me, whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. As we see how these connect, Jesus had just been telling about how he's going to be killed. And not only killed, he's going to be given into the hands of men. He's going to be rejected and betrayed. Jesus is talking about his rejection. And what are the disciples talking about? The exact opposite. They're talking about how, well, um, I'd be a general in the Lord's army. (laughs) Who is the greatest? They're just not getting it, are they? He's talking about their rejection, and he, he's talking about his rejection, and they're talking about their rank. You know, it's human nature for us just to think of ourselves, isn't it? And how, how great I am. Well, if only you knew, that's our nature. 
Now, we don't know exactly what the disciples were, how they're arguing, but I found this fun. One commentator says, well, we don't know, but this can be fun to think about. So maybe the three, Peter, James, and John said, well, guys, we got to go up on the mountain of transfiguration and see him like that. And um, perhaps the nine responded, yeah, but apparently he didn't think we needed that faith because we had enough. To which the three perhaps could have responded, yeah, but you guys couldn't cast out the demon, so you see how petty we are? Our tendency is self-centeredness. And still, can you just imagine how frustrated the King of Kings might just have been? Aren't you guys going to get it one day? How much longer am I to bear with you? I'm going to I'm going to die. I'm going to be betrayed, and here you are talking about mere trifles that not only don't matter, but are totally different to everything that I've set in place. And to prove his point, Jesus pulls a little child over. Now, it's interesting, in those days, in that culture, children weren't really um, the cream of the crop, if you will. According to one commentator, Daryl Bach, says it was still often considered a waste of time to teach a child under the age of 12, to teach them the Torah, to teach them the Bible. He quotes one of um, the ancient um, Israelite texts, morning sleep, midday wine, chattering with children, and tarrying in places where men of common people assemble, destroy a man. Here, children and status issues appear side by side. Jesus does not view children as insignificant. He takes one who many had considered the lowest of the low, and how he loves the little ones. We know this. Jesus loves the little children. And he takes a little child. And in other places in Scripture, he's often teaching about the faith of a child, is he not? It's not a function of status. It's a function of meek and lowliness, of meekness and lowliness. As they're talking about rank, Jesus says the key to the kingdom, the way to kingdom significance is through lowliness and meekness of heart by receiving the one who cannot give you anything. Because what can a child? How can they increase your status? The way to greatness in the kingdom of God is through selflessness. After all, the king himself will be rejected. Don't think about being great. Don't play the comparison game. Well, I'm better than, I don't do as much than. It's fascinating to think that Peter, who may not have gotten it in the moment, we don't know, but listen to these words in 1 Peter. 
because he got it later. First Peter 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We hear that repeated time and time again through the scripture. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, in the, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. You see, church, God is in the business of exalting at the proper time. We're not to be in that business. And so moving to application, we see that God opposes. I do not want to be against God, do you? He opposes the proud. So church, may we get our eyes off ourselves. He's the one who does the exalting in the proper time. Peter exhorts us, he admonishes, he encourages us to literally clothe ourselves in humility towards one another, which is literally the exact opposite that the disciples were doing at that time, wasn't it? As sports are about to start back up, I was trying to think of some simple ways that we see this in our lives. I don't know, maybe it's your child getting benched at the wrong time or playing time. Maybe it's not puffing ourselves up in the sense of who we know. Maybe it's simply just not thinking so highly of ourselves. Maybe it's simply, my dad is so good at this. Like, dad, just walk through the doorway. It's going to be clunkier for, like, you to open the door and, and then for me to walk through. He's just so selfless in that way, just always opening the door. Humble yourselves, therefore, in the sight of the Lord, so he may exalt you at the proper time. And just when we thought that Jesus was as clear as you possibly could be, we get down to the last section, verse 49. Now, if I were going to give a test, which I'm not, what would be the indicator that this section of Scripture actually goes with the one preceding it? says that John answered. That word answered indicates to us that this is not to be taken in isolation. Apparently, John thought that Jesus, well, he just needed a further clarification, or he needed an answer of some sort, because John responds with an answer. And what is his answer? Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Jesus wasn't asking a question. And so John, he brought up, well, apparently you need an answer. We saw this guy. He was doing it, casting out demons in your name, and we had to stop him. What is John implying? I've always found this a fascinating passage. I'm like, what's going on here? Well, John's kind of implying well, Lord, if he doesn't follow with, <clears throat> if he doesn't follow with us, he shouldn't be doing that. You see how John is implying that these disciples are better than these disciples. 
the exact opposite of what Jesus was still trying to get across their thick skulls. No. No, John. There is no difference. I'm saying, we're, we're better, aren't we? We had to stop him. And still the master, I just envision, I just envision part of his heart being like, John, don't you get it? How much longer am I to bear with you? When will you see? You know, this, by the way, was the John who had just seen Jesus in all his glory upon the Mount of Transfiguration. If anyone should understand all of this, it would be John. After all, he was part of the inner circle of Jesus, but he still doesn't get it, and Christ is patient with him. Now, this, um, this phrase, Jesus' response, this phrase, might be very familiar to us. Let's read it one last time. Jesus says to John, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Now, um, again, it, it seems common because we also know the exact opposite which Jesus also says in 11.23, Luke 11.23, Jesus says literally the opposite. He who is not for me is against me. It's like, well, how on earth do these two kind of work together? Well, in the latter, in the Luke 11 account, Jesus is talking about evil. Those who are not for me are against me. And in this account, we see that Jesus is talking about those who are in the context of, of faith, if you will. Because we saw that that guy was casting out demons in whose name? In the name of Jesus. So he's talking about two totally different groups of people. The point, God's work can be done not only by Friendship Community Church, but by other faithful people. And how we ought not to be like, well, um, we, we don't do that. But God's work is God's work. And this is also fascinating because the disciples themselves were unable to cast out demons, weren't they? And they saw someone casting out demons where their lack of ability, they saw someone doing it and tried to stop him, which again, comes right back to why were they unable in the first place? Because of a self-centeredness. Because who here can cast out a demon in their own power? Only by Christ. Forget the fact that their lack, that their lack of understanding that evil will be triumphed over. Forget the fact that they themselves were unable to cast out the same, um, to cast out demons. Forget the fact that their focus was on themselves and not on the one who made them, not on the one who would receive the glory. They were still trying to stop. And Jesus says, John, if he's not for you, if he's not against you, he is for you. And so, churches, we begin to close. I just want to plead with you not to be part of, of a faithless 
generation and to learn the, lef- the lessons that Jesus is trying to make clear to us. That these disciples give us an example as to how they actually were part of a faithless generation, of a twisted generation. As the majestic Christ in all his glory comes down from the mountain to face evil, to face, literally face a demon, to face rejection, and to face total misunderstanding. And his closest friends really don't get it. How long was he to bear with them? How long was he to be with them? Well, as long as Almighty God saw fit. And so it is with us. How long are you to bear with your world, with your workplace, with your family, with yourself? As long as God sees fit. How are we to bear? Well, it's rather evident that the disciples were unable to do any of it on their own, but by clinging to Jesus Christ. Luke 9.1, Jesus gave them the power. Luke 9.37, they were unable to do the same. It is only in Christ, is it not? It must be the work of Christ that enables us and allows us to continue to bear, to continue to have patience. And so if your patience is running out, church, may I remind you of Psalm 86. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Then here, friends, is the hope that Christ the long-suffering, the patient one, and his, a patient, his patience is available to you. And lastly, may I remind you of Philippians 2, which we read earlier, that we are to be children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine his lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So church, hold fast to this word. Always remember that the patient one alone can be your power and your patience, your humility as we marvel at him and what he has done. May we come before him boldly because after all, it is, it is only in Christ alone that we can do any of this. So here in a moment, we're gonna sing that song in Christ alone. And as we do, may the words ring true that it starts with him and that it ends with Christ alone. Let's pray together. Lord, give us the patience to bear with our world, with our loved ones, with those who, frankly, we just don't like that much. Lord, with ourselves. Lord, may we see that the ranking in the kingdom of heaven is totally different than how we see it, that it is through self-rejection, or that it is through humility, through, as Tozer writes, the self-abnegation of oneself, giving up entirely of oneself. And it is only ever and always through Jesus Christ and through him alone that we have any significance in the kingdom of God. And so as we sing now, may this aroma be pleasing to you, Lord, and may you... 
minister to our hearts as we worship, that it is in Christ alone all of our hope, joy, patience is found. In his precious name we pray.